Please turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Romans, chapter 4. We'll study verses 1 through 5. Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Thus far, our church has studied through this letter of the Apostle Paul to the church at Rome. It's a diverse church. It's made up of people from a Gentile background and also from people who are Jewish Christians who have been raised in Judaism and come to faith in Jesus Christ. And here he writes to them pastorally. He wants them to see the gospel clearly, to know Christ and the freedom that is in him. He wants them to understand not only their sinfulness and their need, but also the free offer of grace through him and his blood that was shed on the cross. And so in chapter 4, we press on in Paul's discourse on the doctrine of salvation by faith. And let us give our attention to the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now for the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, His faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks the blessing of the one whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Thus far the word of the Lord our God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, your word is to be desired more than gold, even much fine gold. It is sweeter also than honey and drippings from the honeycomb. Lord, as we study this wonderful passage of Scripture, as we are reminded of what free grace truly is, we pray that you would help us to receive afresh Jesus and all the forgiveness that is given to us in him by faith. Lord, we ask that you would reign over us. Oh, Lord, that you would give us alert minds and receptive hearts. We pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Justification. That is what Paul is primarily concerned about in this section of his letter. And if you're not with us regularly or haven't been familiar with the language of justification, let me read to you a simple answer to the question, what is justification, from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It says, justification is an act of God's free grace. And so firstly, you should know that justification is something God does. And he does it freely, not because of what we do deserve, not because of what we don't deserve. And it continues on that justification is an act of God's free grace where he pardons all our sins. It's where God says to you, you 
are no longer guilty nor deserving of punishment for the things you have done and the things you have left undone. It goes on where he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight. To be justified means that the Lord looks down upon us and he doesn't only say, no longer guilty, but he says, righteous. He is accounting us as holy, as if we ourselves had fulfilled every letter of the law's demands. But it goes on, and it tells us that not only does he accept us as righteous in his sight, but because of the righteousness of Christ imputed or given to us and received by faith alone. How are we righteous? How are we called not guilty? How are we accepted in his sight? Because he gives to us the gift of the righteousness, the obedience, the holiness of Jesus, and also the satisfaction that Jesus died in our place, that we and all of our sins have been punished in the person of Jesus, and that's freely received if a person would simply believe in Christ for salvation. That's what we're talking about this morning. Justification. And if any of you wonder, is that important? It's in Important enough that Paul spends so much time on it. And it's important enough that it made it into the 66 books of the Bible. And that it's throughout. And that's what Paul's going to show us this morning. That it is from Genesis to Revelation. It's the very core. It's at the very center of the Christian faith. That a man or a woman or a child is made righteous before God. Reconciled to him. Simply by faith in Jesus Christ. And so this morning as we go and study that again, I want us to see two things. I'll tell you the third point. We'll get there next week. I have no sense that I'll be able to get there with a decent length of a sermon today. But the first thing that I want you to see in the passage is a doctrine rooted in Scripture. A doctrine rooted in Scripture. The second thing I want you to see is the falsehood of a proud heart. The falsehood of a proud heart. And then thirdly, which we'll see next week, is that faith is itself not a work. Faith is itself not a work. And so, as we come to chapter 4, I want to remind you that Paul knows who he's talking to. That he knows that he's writing to a multicultural church, not terribly unlike our own. If you're visiting here this morning, you may not know, but there are, I would say, at least more than 10 nationalities and nations represented in this service just this morning. Paul knows who he's talking to. He knows that a great number of his hearers and his readers are not only Gentile Christians from a Roman background, or maybe a Gallic background, or a European background, or a or a Iberian Peninsula background, but that he's talking also to a number of Jewish Christians who were raised in a Jewish household, who went to synagogue, who had a bar mitzvah, a bet mitzvah, who had been circumcised, who know the law, 
who can recite probably the first five books of the Bible from heart and then sing the Psalms as if from the heart. And here he's laboring that justification by faith alone is the very core of the gospel. He's been going over it again and again. It's even from chapter 1 and it's piercing all the way through into this section. And one of the things that Paul has wanted to tell them is that the thing that he's teaching is not new. It's not new. In fact, in chapter 1, verse 2, Paul says that he derives his teaching from the law and the prophets. And then if you look back from chapter 4, just a few verses, to chapter 3, verse 21, he again repeats the same thing, that this is derived from the law and the prophets. And so at least what Paul is saying is that his is a doctrine rooted in Scripture. That it's not new. Because you see something that I want to encourage you to understand this morning is that doctrine is like wine. It's best when it's a little bit old. Paul wants them to know this isn't an innovation. It's not a new thing. It's not just something that Paul decided was a good idea last night as he was making up notes to share with them. But rather this is something deeply rooted in an authority that goes back all the way before even the beginning of time. And so, Paul points them where? Well, in verse 1, he points them to Abraham. Abraham. It's as if there are no other figures in the whole of the Bible that loom more largely over the people of Israel than Abraham. He's larger than the prophets. He's larger than Moses He's the father of every person of the household of Israel. And so in verse 1, that's where he points. And he asks the question, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? You see, this is a personal appeal. It's as if he knows that the people that are reading his letter, the people in the church in Rome, Jewish Christians, would ask the question most assuredly, Well then, did Abraham have salvation by another way? Was Abraham saved by works or was he saved by faith in Jesus? And so Paul says, you know, we'll go directly to that. Strategically. We'll go right to Abraham and we'll seek him out and we'll ask the question for you and we'll walk through it biblically together. It's as if he's saying, let's put this doctrine to the taste test of the man who is Abraham. And then you look down just a little and you have verse 2, and Paul answers the question. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. And then in verse 3, he continues and he answers the question by Scripture. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. You see, he just quotes Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. This would have been a verse that would have not only been known by Jewish Christians and Jews more broadly, but it would have been known specifically to them. And it would have been something that would have stuck in their ear and in their mind, and it would have immediately drawn them in, and it should draw us in this morning to simply ask the question, 
by works for Abraham or by faith, the Bible says simply that it was by faith. I do want to say that in verse 2, you see Paul uh, address something that's very common. That's our second point regarding boasting. We're not going to touch on it in this point of the sermon. We're going to come back to it because this is a large theme in the writing of Paul and in the book of Romans. The idea of boasting and how it doesn't accord with the gospel of salvation by faith alone. And you may be asking the question... Okay, then what else is there to say? It seems like case is closed. The Bible said it, Genesis 15, uh, verse 6. I mean, that's it. Abraham was saved by faith. He was accounted or justified by faith and accounted as righteous. So is there any other discussion to have? Did people even believe that Abraham was saved by works? And the answer is yes, friends. This isn't just Paul saying empty things into the wind. And whether or not Paul has these two things that I'm about to cite for you in mind is, is, is indifferent. This is, this is emblematic of the culture of the people of Israel in the first century. And another pastor pointed out two cited apocryphal works or passages written in the space between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The first of them is called the Prayer of Manasseh. dates back to the second century before Christ. And so he's saying for 200 years, possibly, at least, people had a mistake about this. And here's what the prayer of Manasseh reads in an excerpt. Therefore, you, O Lord, the God of the righteous, have not appointed repentance for the righteous. For Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who did not sin against you, but you have appointed repentance for me, a sinner. And you see, the mind of Manasseh, or whoever writes this book that's not biblical, it's not part of the canon of Scripture, they're saying Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are in a different class. They don't need to repent. They haven't sinned against God. However, that's how they were, but you appointed repentance for me. And so there's a sense there are these two different methods of salvation. A salvation by obedience and works, and a salvation by repentance that anticipates faith. That second century, prayer of Manasseh, not part of the Bible, 200 years old at the time that Paul's writing this. And then there's the book of Jubilees, another intertestamental book. And here's a brief excerpt. Abraham was perfect in his deeds with the Lord and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. Abraham was perfect in his deeds with the Lord and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. And if you've ever read the Bible, ever, you have to simply say, if that's the culture of the first century, what are they thinking? I mean, just go to Genesis again and go to chapter 12, verses 10 through 20. Actually, go ahead and turn in your Bible there. Let's go there. Genesis chapter 12, because we want you to know Abraham. We want you to know the man who Paul counts as the father of the people of Israel and the the state of his soul, the moral condition of the man. God had called him out of the land of Ur of the Chaldeans into a promised land. He came from a pagan background, presumably, and the Lord called him to simply follow him by faith, and so he did. 
And we pick up in verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. For the famine was severe in the land. The land is the promised land, okay? Where God called him to go by faith. Verse 11. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you're my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Do you hear what he's doing? He's saying, I'm afraid they're going to kill you if they think you're my wife and take you because you're just so good looking. Just tell him you're my sister, go do whatever you want. And he gives his wife into the hands of another man. Wicked. There's nothing righteous about that. You don't have to squint, but if you continue to read on in the passage of Scripture, it says even more. Verse 14, when Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful, of course. And when the princes of the Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Read between the lines. And for her sake, he dealt with well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. He got a bride price for her. He sold his wife to another man. His wife, not just his girlfriend, certainly not his sister, his wife. Verse 17, what's God's opinion of this morally? But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. That's not righteous. That's not holy. And it is plainly evident in the testimony of the scriptures. So at least we have to say that Manasseh seemingly didn't read the Bible. Or at least if he did, he ignored a large part. And so also the author of the book of Jubilees. It can't possibly be. This is sinful. But that's not all that Abram did. If you were to read forward into Genesis 17, you've got the account of Abraham after the Lord has promised to give him children taking not his wife Sarai but a different one and then having what? Well, a different son. A son of his own design, a son that's not a son of promise. Ishmael. Being impatient rather than just simply waiting on the Lord and having Isaac as his son in the Lord's time and by the Lord's provision. He wanted to do it his way instead of the Lord's way. Transparently sinful. And so what's the deal? Why is the point needing to be made? And it's this, because Abraham, like every other person, is far from sinless. We have just two testimonies that I mentioned this morning of the sin of his own life. He could not possibly, could not possibly be called righteous because of the things that he did. 
In fact, if you read the life of Abraham in the Old Testament, it may be to you a great comfort if you know your own sin and you think simply, I'm not alone in this. There were sinners in the Bible and I'm a sinner and we all need grace. And so that's what Paul is simply saying. That's his point. Abraham needed the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He needed the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's saying to the Jewish reader, this is not new and the Bible testifies to it. This is an ancient doctrine. There are not two ways of salvation, but one. There's not a salvation by works, any other works than the works of Jesus. There is only salvation in him, period. And every person needs it tremendously. Tremendously. And so a takeaway, I want to tell you, Christian, it's not only that you, like Abraham, need to have faith in Jesus for salvation, but a very clear point Do what Paul did and be sure that your doctrinal beliefs are derived from Scripture alone. Put it to the test of the Bible. Search the Bible. Because if it's in the Bible, it doesn't come with the authority of Manasseh, who may have written many good things, but who himself was fallible the author of the book of Jubilees, nor even a theologian or a preacher. But it comes with the authority of the word of God and God himself. And God gives clarity where we ourselves lack clarity. Justification by faith alone is a doctrine rooted in scripture. And then secondly, the falsehood of a proud heart. Last week, whenever we studied chapter 3 and the closing of it, I mentioned a little bit about this, this idea of boasting. But here again, we have it in Paul. And in chapter 4, we saw it in chapter 3 in verse 27, where he asked the question, what then becomes of our boasting? He says it is excluded. And then in verse 2, we return to it once again. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. You see, whenever Paul says this, he's saying that salvation and a right life before the Lord does not mix with works. Because he's saying very simply that if a man or a woman or a child works or does things or is righteous for their own salvation, they are working for it and they have all the right of the praise and the benefit and the reward of it. And it is a huge concern for Paul. These two things don't mix. If you look down, you look at verse 4, and he continues to make this point. He says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. It makes sense. Who works a work week here? Are you tired at the end of your day? Of course you are. Does your boss owe you your paycheck? Yes, he does. You have a right to it. It's not just a gift. It's not something he thinks, oh, you're such a nice guy and I like you a whole lot. Nice lady, here's something for you at the end of the day and pat you on the head and send you away. No, he better pay you. She better pay you what you're owed. 
correct? And Paul is simply saying if a person works for their salvation when they stand before God and simply are put to the test, why should you come into the kingdom? If a person is saved by works, they should be able to say, because I purchased my place there, I own it, you owe it to me. I just want you to understand, Paul thinks that his readers would understand that that boasting is in every way horrible before the face of God. This is an argument that no one would agree with, that a person should stand before the face of God and pray like the prayer of the Pharisee in the gospel. Oh Lord, I'm thankful I'm not like that person. It's as if he knows that his readers would hear this and simply say, of course no one could boast before the face of the Lord. It doesn't make sense. It's a repugnant idea. Who could possibly ever do that? They should never do it. And this is such a huge concern for Paul because he knows the hearts of humanity that he writes it again in 1 Corinthians 1, 28-30. Turn there with me. 1 Corinthians 1, 28 through 30. Don't believe me, believe the word. He writes, God chose what was low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him... You are in Christ Jesus, who because to us was in the form of God, righteous, and sanctification, or who became to us wisdom from God, excuse me, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord." Now, where is Paul quoting, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord? He's quoting it from Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. It's, this is common in the faith of the people of Israel. He repeats it again in Ephesians 2, uh, verses 8 and 9. Turn there with me. This was our assurance of pardon this morning. For thus by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And there are other places he repeats this even. And so again, the thing that I'm telling you is this. That in verses 4 and 5, and in the close of this, why he goes after the idea of boasting is, is that pride... Pride in the face of God regarding our salvation. Pride puts us on the throne of our own salvation. It's us saying, I am my own savior. I deserve to come in. I did the work. I should be in your presence. I'm right. I'm righteous. I'm the man. I'm the woman. Open that door. I'll kick it down. I have a right to it. Let me in. Look at what I've done. Do you see where the fingers are pointed and where the fingers are not pointed? They're pointed towards us if there is boasting. And Paul is saying simply, if you're saved by works, you have every right to boast. Because it is a boastful and prideful salvation that you yourself would claim.
It's a trophy for a life well lived. It's glory snatched from the Redeemer of mankind, the person of Jesus Christ. And he is simply saying, this does not mix with the gospel of grace. It's a lie. It's a lie. And everybody needs to know it. Because every single person, whether it's Abraham, whether it's me, whether it's you, desperately need a Savior. And we only have a Savior through putting our faith in Jesus. What is required of our salvation? Faith alone. Nothing more is required of you. And friends, nothing less than Jesus as our Redeemer is sufficient to save us. Because even if we hung on the cross, we will have deserved everything and even more than we could bear. But as the innocent one hung in our place, he deserved nothing and received everything that we deserved. And he died our death, which was put to death in his death, that we might live. Pride is a falsehood before the face of God. And if we even for a moment entertain that we deserve heaven because of who we are, what we've done, we rob him of the glory he deserves. And we walk ourselves dangerously close, if not directly, down the road of our own destruction. Would you put your faith in Jesus and Jesus alone? Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the grace that we have received. Lord, we can know that we have a Redeemer who lived and died for us and who lives again. Lord, help us to cling to him by faith. Lord, he might be the just and the justifier. Lord, we could call him Savior. That we could know him as our own Redeemer. Oh, Father in heaven, we pray all of this with thankful hearts in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.